Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for what we celebrate today. Palm Sunday, the day that you rode into Jerusalem as the king. And we know that there was, a lot that was, there, were, there was a lot of excitement, a lot of fervor, but there was a lot of lacking in terms of really understanding what you were doing, what the purpose of what you were doing was. And it was to fulfill prophecy because you were the Messiah, and it was also to start you on that road, or continue that road, really, to the cross. And that is where our only foundation lies, is at, the, is at Calvary and at that empty grave. Lord, I pray that your word would go forth and, and do something, do a little something in our hearts uh, this morning that we may leave here a little bit different than when we came in. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in 2012, the news website run by The Ledger published an online article that gave some personal stories about misunderstandings. Here are a few I found pretty amusing. One person wrote, quote, there's a singles group at my church for people over 35, so I decided to tempt fate and attend to lunch. As I entered the dining room, I noticed about 300 people, most of them, like me, female. Since I didn't know anyone, I sat at an empty table near the front. Soon, six men walked up and joined me, all of them young and good-looking. I was stunned and thought, well, maybe it's my new dress. They were... <laughs> They were friendly and introduced themselves as they sat down. Then the man to my right enlightened me. This was the first table to go through the buffet line. <laughs> Another person wrote, my friend in his mid-40s was in a store with his two-year-old son. One passerby was so taken with the boy's thick curly hair that she exclaimed, your granddaughter is so beautiful. As the woman went on, my friend said to his son, Matthew, I think we've both been insulted. <laughs> and lastly, another story went, each morning as a woman was watering her lawn, her three-year-old neighbor, Brandon, would poke his head through their mutual fence and say hello. One day, she saw the little boy at the supermarket shopping with his mother. Brandon pointed to the woman and said, hey, how did you get out? <laughs> <laughs> Even though these are pretty amusing stories of how a simple misunderstanding can turn something into a humorous situation, there was a pretty glaring misunderstanding by Jesus' followers when it came to him entering Jerusalem directly on his way to the cross. Jesus knows exactly what's going on and what will happen, where it will come as a shock to all those who had laid down uh, palm branches in front of Jesus as he walked past. Even though uh, uh, I started to allude to this um, last week, we're taking a bit of a break from the Gospel of John this morning and talking about Palm Sunday from the Gospel of Matthew today. Prior to our, our, our um, passage in Matthew this morning, the Gospel writer Luke writes these words to transition to Jesus' focus in his earthly ministry. Luke writes this, as the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. 
Now, Jesus will take the long way around to Jerusalem after that, doing the work and teaching about the kingdom of God that he knew he was called to do by his father, and won't directly leave straight for Jerusalem until about nine chapters later. But this is a transition marker by Luke. There is a distinct movement in Jesus' ministry as recorded here. One where Jesus is determined to resolutely head down the road towards what he knows is waiting for him in Jerusalem. Not only does he know that the cross is waiting for him in Jerusalem, and that that is the one thing between him and his ascension back to the Father, but he knows the prophecy that will need to be fulfilled before even the cross as well. Everything that starts Jesus hurtling towards the cross will start with his prophetically fulfilled entrance into Jerusalem, which we remember and observe as Palm Sunday today. If you go back and read through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll notice something in between all the miracles and all the parables and teaching about the kingdom of God. And between all of that, there is this spiritual battle going on between the forces of darkness and Jesus and what he knows his father's timeline is for the revelation of him as the Messiah. When demons were cast out of different people and they threatened to undo that timeline of revelation, Jesus had to rebuke them and tell them to shut up. When the crowds of people wanted to start a rebellion towards the Roman Empire and set Jesus up as the leader who was going to lead this rebellion, Jesus had to escape. All of those times were premature. They weren't the right timing. And more importantly, they didn't fulfill the prophecies of Jesus' revelation as the Messiah as foretold by the Old Testament prophets hundreds of years before. So this morning, we're going to look at the gospel writer Matthew's recording of these Old Testament prophecies of Jesus revealed as the true king, and what deeper meaning Jesus' fulfillment of these prophecies gives to the triumphal entry into Jerusalem and our celebration of it on Palm Sunday. So if you brought your Bibles with you today, please turn to Matthew chapter 21. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to Matthew 21. We're going to be in the first 11 verses of that. Or you can look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. But Matthew chapter 21, um, verses 1 through 5, we're going to get to in a second. After Jesus and his disciples leave the town of Jericho on a direct route to Jerusalem and the cross, we read this, verses 1 through 5. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me." If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Jesus doesn't immediately enter Jerusalem. First, he stops at the village of Bethphage. Many scholars believe that Bethphage was very close to Bethany. Remember Bethany? Hopefully you do. We talked about it last week. And in fact, Bethany and Bethphage are mentioned 
uh, together in Mark's account of the triumphal entry. As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. So they're mentioned together. This is why I started to reference Bethany, the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, last week in connection with Palm Sunday. According to one biblical scholar, Bethphage, along with Bethany, which was right next to it, were popular suburban tourist destinations when it came to Jewish people visiting Jerusalem. These towns were at the edge of the Pharisaical distance that it was allowable for Jewish people to walk on the Sabbath. So Jesus and his disciples reach Bethphage, and he sends two of his disciples to what Matthew and Mark describe as the village opposite of where they are, perhaps this very well could have been Bethany, the village right next to Bethphage. What are they supposed to do when they get there? Well, we read that they were supposed to find a mother donkey and her colt, baby donkey, both tied to a post, untie them, and bring them back to Jesus at Bethphage. Now, if you were the owner of these donkeys or an onlooker and you saw a couple of random guys walk into your village and try stealing these donkeys, what would your reaction be? Whoa, 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 cool it. What in the world do you think you're doing? Jesus already has a plan for that anticipated response. He tells these disciples before they even left Bethphage, if anyone asks you what you're doing, tell them the Lord needs them. That's huge right there. This act was not uncommon, especially to those living in Bethany or Bethphage, but this was not something that just anyone could do. What was common, especially to those living in these neighboring towns, to the metropolis of Jerusalem, was that when a royal emissary on his way to Jerusalem needed an animal for transportation, they could impress upon these residents to temporarily allow them to use that animal. So to have someone do this was not in and of itself out of the ordinary. However, this man Jesus was a little bit different than your run-of-the-mill royal emissary, wasn't he? This act by Jesus was one sign of Jesus being the royal Messiah, the royal king, the true king of Israel and really of the whole world. Jesus knew that the owner of these donkeys was enough of his follower, or at least sensitive enough, to realize that and let the donkeys go. It was now time for that messianic and royal revelation. Jesus knew the Old Testament prophecies. His fellow member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is the one who originated these prophecies, writing them through men. Jesus is the embodiment of the Word of God, every Word of God, both Old and New Testaments. So he knows the prophecy given in, old, in the Old Testament, which Matthew records in verse 5. He knows that that needs to be fulfilled. So what is that first prophecy? In verse 5, Matthew basically quotes directly from Zechariah 9.9, but many biblical scholars believe that Matthew is also indirectly referencing Isaiah 62.11. So in order to get the full picture of what Matthew is getting at here with his quote, we also need to understand Isaiah 62.11, and this is what that says. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, Say to the daughter of Zion, Lo, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. 
The whole chapter of Isaiah 62, and you can go back and read this, is a message which speaks about the restoration of Israel. During the prophet Isaiah's time on earth, he brought messages from God during the reigns of four kings, all kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. During Isaiah's time, he witnessed the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel to the Assyrian army, and it looked like Judah would be next. However, Judah, through God's help, withstood the attack from Assyria. Isaiah knew that Judah would be exiled at some point in the future, though, so his book of Isaiah contains messages directed towards two groups of people. The first target of messages was Isaiah's current generation, to seek to get them to turn from their sinful behavior. The second target of messages was the future generation of Jewish people who would be exiled to Babylonian lands. So because of that, the first part of Isaiah, directed to those of Isaiah's generation, mostly focused on what would befall Judah if they did not turn from their sins. The second part, as God, as we all know, is a merciful God, is directed to those future exiles, that God would restore them, and not just restore them in an earthly sense, which would happen, but restore them in a full and complete sense, which will only take place during the reign of the coming messianic king. Isaiah 62 falls within the messages of hope for those future exiles living in hopelessness in Babylon. It speaks of Jerusalem's full restoration during what we know as the still future messianic millennial kingdom. We read this. The nations will see your righteousness. World leaders will be blinded by your glory. And you will be given a new name by the Lord's own mouth. The Lord will hold you in his hand for all to see. A splendid crown in the hand of God. The Lord has sworn to Jerusalem by his own strength, I will never again hand you over to your enemies. Never again will foreign warriors come and take away your grain and new wine. You raise the grain and you will eat it praising the Lord. Within the courtyards of the temple, you yourselves will drink the wine you have pressed. If we were living in exile in Babylon and read those words, they would give us great hope, wouldn't they? You've lost everything, but these words would give you great hope. And who, by reading these words, was going to be the one to initiate this time of renowned peace and abundance. God himself. He says, the Lord has sworn to Jerusalem by his own strength. This is what I'm going to do. We read this in the following verses. Go out through the gates. Prepare the highway for my people to return. Smooth out the road. Pull out the boulders. Raise a flag for all the nations to see. The Lord has sent this message to every land. Tell the people of Israel, look, your Savior is coming. See, he brings his reward with him as he comes. 
They will be called the holy people and the people redeemed by the Lord. And Jerusalem will be known as the desirable place and the city no longer forsaken. That's the context that Matthew pulls his quote from in verse 11. As we read these, these are all joyous words, aren't they? They speak of God himself coming. He will be the savior of Jerusalem and all of her inhabitants. Not only that, but God as savior will bring his reward with him when he arrives. According to one biblical scholar, when a banner was raised in this time period, or or a flag, when a banner was raised, it was meant to announce some big news. So Isaiah, using this language, he's saying that the whole world should know that God is coming. Not only that, but God's people scattered all over the ancient world should be informed that God is coming. Those are exciting words, especially the ones about full restoration and God bringing his reward to Jerusalem. We know that the words would be fully fulfilled in the future, but those living in Babylon and then hundreds of years later, once Jerusalem was partially restored, those living during Jesus' time, what would they be expecting? They would be expecting all of this at the same time. That brings us to Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. With the understanding that this, of that similar language that's used in Isaiah 62 and that it's a direct reference to God himself coming to restore Jerusalem with his reward. The king is, yes, referring to the Messiah and king, but that king also being who? The Messiah king also being God. The connection is incredibly significant. Now, Zechariah was a prophet who was born in Babylon during the Jewish exile and was a contemporary of those who returned to Jerusalem following Persian King Cyrus's decree to let the Jewish people return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Why is this significant? While Isaiah's prophecy about God himself coming to Jerusalem happened before the Babylonian exile to the future Jewish people in that exile, Zechariah's similar words come after the Jewish people have returned to so-called restored Jerusalem. So Zechariah's similar language is connecting back to Isaiah's prophecy years before. And the connection is this. Even though it seems like Jerusalem is being restored right now, the arrival of this Savior and this King, God himself, still has not fully occurred yet. Keep looking. Keep your eyes open for him. He's still coming. This is how he will arrive. He will arrive on a donkey, and not just a donkey, but the colt of a donkey. That statement was enough to turn heads itself. Royal dignitaries 
did not enter a city on a donkey, let alone the offspring, even more humble, the offspring of a donkey. They entered with strong-looking steeds, with entourages. That humility in messianic anticipation became a source of pride for the Jewish people. But the Jewish people at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem forgot about the meaning behind the humility of entering on a donkey. Military processionals, which the people laying down palm branches thought was going on when Jesus rode in on a donkey, were done with a horse. Civil and peaceful visits were done on a donkey. That symbol doesn't seem to go hand in hand with what this king would be, just and endowed with salvation. The misinterpretation of that is purely physical by the people there uh, on Palm Sunday, that this king would bring salvation to Jerusalem by releasing her from Roman occupation and mete out his justice on all those who had oppressed Jerusalem. That was the misinterpretation. What it did mean was a spiritual salvation and a spiritual justice. Rather, those putting their trust in him not getting what they justly deserve. Amen? But then again, as we've seen time and time again, God purposely designed everything about his plan to not make any earthly sense to the world. It was purposely designed to only be understood through spiritual revelation and God opening spiritual eyes. The same is true of the triumphal entry. The Jewish people in Jesus' day did understand that they were to be looking for their Messiah King entering Jerusalem on a donkey. And some may have even understood him to also be God, but they did not fully understand the symbolism of his first arrival in Jerusalem. Now, there will be a day when Jesus will return, as I've been mentioning time and time again throughout this morning, to the area of Jerusalem, standing on the Mount of Olives. And that time, when he bursts out of heaven, he'll be riding a powerful horse, coming in a military processional to win military victory for Jerusalem and really the entire world. This was the crowd's understanding and lack of understanding with the first prophecy Matthew quoted. Now what about the second one, verses 6 through 11? The disciples went and did just as, as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on, on them and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats on the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. The crowds were going ahead of him, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. What Matthew quotes in verse 9 is only the middle part of what he records the people chanting as Jesus rides from Bethphage to, to Jerusalem. And it comes directly out of the first line of Psalm 118.26. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. 
So did Matthew just rip this out of context and apply it to a scenario that this verse has nothing to do with? Let's go to the psalm and find out just that. We know from other messianic psalms that the author can start out with one topic and it can become messianic very quickly, right? This is because of what is described by the theological term called telescoping when dealing with prophecy. More or less, what telescoping means is that a prophecy may have two meanings, a somewhat immediate one and a telescoping or a still future complete fulfillment. We already dealt with this a little bit when we talked about the restoration of Jerusalem. A lot of the prophecies in the Old Testament before the Jewish exiles returned to Jerusalem both referred to the partial restoration of Jerusalem when the Jewish exiles returned and rebuilt the temple and city walls and the future complete restoration of Jerusalem when Jesus returns and sets up his earthly kingdom. The fact that Psalm 118 was used by the people of Israel during Passover, which anybody who hasn't been keeping track of, it, of everything starts this Wednesday. And this is why all these people were gathered in Jerusalem in the first place on this day we're talking about 2,000 years ago is astounding. Here's why. This psalm was often quoted during Passover with a partial understanding of what it really meant. While the now fulfillment of this psalm involved Israel as the object, the complete fulfillment of this psalm was the fulfillment of Israel, and that is Israel's Savior, Jesus. You'll see what I mean when we read portions of this. Again, same psalm. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me, and you have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And if you've read your Bible, you know that's the verse Jesus applies to himself. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Isn't the connection between the words of that psalm and what was unfolding before the crowd's eyes as the long-awaited righteous Messiah who was to bring salvation rode through one of the gates of Jerusalem, a tremendous one? This is what that even reveals to us as to why they shouted why they sh what they shouted and why they laid down palm branches in front of him. Again, same psalm. O Lord, do save. What's the word Hosanna mean? Save now. We beseech you, O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. The crowd recognized Jesus as their salvation, albeit a misplaced salvation. Again, they only saw a physical salvation from Rome. If we had any doubts that they were attributing this to Jesus, the very next verse is the one Matthew records they quoted verbatim. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Lastly, Psalm 118.27 in the NASB says, The Lord is God and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. 
There's already a close connection with foliage here, as the Hebrew word for cords and the Hebrew word for foliage are the exact same word. In fact, as this psalm was also chanted during the Feast of Tabernacles, which we talked about a, a few weeks ago in Messianic and end time significance, they would wave palm branches during that festival. That understanding is reflected in the NIV translation of this. The Lord is God, God, and he has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. So it has a connection to both tree branches and more than anyone at that point wanted to think about a sacrifice. According to one biblical scholar, palm branches were also symbols of joy and victory. And at this point in history, both Jewish people and Roman soldiers saw them as symbols of peace. All of this connects with the Jewish crowd anticipating this Messiah as coming to finally bring them civil peace. All that to say, the crowd had a partial understanding of what was going on and what they were anticipating and why they should be excited. But they misunderstood the other parts in the Old Testament that talked about the Messiah suffering and even dying. They wanted the good parts of the prophecy to all come true right then and there. However, that was never the way it was supposed to be. And I think I can speak for all of us that I'm grateful it wasn't. I'm grateful that my Savior didn't fully bring in the kingdom then. I'm grateful that he was obedient even to the point of death on a cross. I'm grateful that he rose again from the dead three days later. And I'm grateful that even though he knew what awaited him when all the cheering had died down and it was old news and the palm branches laying in the road had withered and dried all up and everyone went back to their observance of Passover, he still went through with it. And that's the true understanding of what happened on that first Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago. We can put our trust in what the fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies, along with hundreds more, did for us the first time he came to earth, so that we can not only spend the rest of our earthly lives with him, the Holy Spirit indwelling us, but all of our eternal afterlife. The second time this fulfillment, the telescoping part of this, comes back to earth, it's going to be a much different story. Not only will Jerusalem be restored, but the whole world will be restored. The whole world will be transformed into an unprecedented time of peace and prosperity. And God's timing with Christ ruling over all of it as eternal king. So as we think about what happened in the past in connection with Palm Sunday, let us then use that to keep our eyes on what will happen in the future. Next time, the king returns to Jerusalem. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we read in the Gospel of Matthew of what happened the first time you rode into Jerusalem, that time on a donkey, we thank you that 
as the cheering died down and everybody went back to their business for Passover, you still kept going. You, you knew what lay ahead of you and you kept going. <coughs> we thank you that you kept going. We thank you that even as you wrestled with intense spiritual torment in the garden and you sweat drops of blood because of that emotional and spiritual torment you were going through, saying, Lord, please take this cup from me, but if I will still go through it if it's your will. Lord, thank you for going through it. Thank you for still going through it a good Friday. And we know that that Friday was only good because of what followed up to it on that Sunday. I pray that as we enter this Holy Week, this year of 2023, we will put our full trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus and, and wait with eager anticipation the second time you come back to Jerusalem. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me.